hey, welcome to another episode of Radio Zaddy, uh, the place to come to learn a little bit more about something that's queer uh, for this bi-weekly podcast that we do. Uh, I'm Hannah Bestwick and I'm here with the wonderful magnanimous... Daisy Thurston Jen. Thank you. Magnanimous. Yes, Thank course. you very much. Yeah. What a compliment. I know, I think... <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's all relevant to you. How are you doing? How's your day been? Um, It's been all right, actually. Yeah, I just made some dinner. Um, I did leave the house today, so that's something. <gasps> oh, well done. Um, Daisy, you've got new glasses. I do. I've joined the, uh, I've joined the cool... Uh, queer glasses club um the spec squad yeah spec squad is that what we're called when does my badge arrive <laughs> i'm super yeah it's great it turns out i was um uh, not able to see an awful lot um mm. i got to the i got to the appointment to pick up uh my glasses and he said oh you didn't drive here did you <laughs> i was like rude but also uh no i didn't um i just cycled in a in a in a glossy haze of not being able to see um so it's amazing i can read so much wow more um everything yeah, is in I imagine high, the world is just high yeah, definition in hd i was yeah i was thinking about that maybe you've just become accustomed to navigating a world of blurs mm. you know i'm sure we all get used to things yeah so. i've probably been wandering around um you know wandering around the streets of cambridge which is obviously you know my my hometown around my hometown do you even know what i look like yeah i mean i probably see people all the time who are like wow that that daisy went off to london uh you know came back too but too good for us now doesn't even recognize us yeah i just can't see you knowledge me if i've got any cambridge friends listening it's just because i can't see you uh, but i can now so i'm trying to go for little walks around the block and just see what i've been missing <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm, i've been i've been good um yeah i'm feeling i'm feeling nice. cool i'm feeling i'm getting into the character of uh yeah somebody who who now wears glasses um and it's really helping with the my character. work my like productivity at work has absolutely skyrocketed um i'm leading meetings with confidence <laughs> Is that because you can see or is that just because now you are the, you have donned the persona of a glassed person? Yeah, I now know what they want from me because I, I can actually read the briefs. Uh, I can read the agenda for nice. the meetings. Uh, it's brilliant. <laughs> no, I've, uh, I've adopted this new kind of confidence, um, which is hopefully going to really help with the podcast. You know, I, I do one episode on AI and I think I'm God's gift to queer tech. But <laughs> anyway, how are you? How's your week been? Yeah, it's been all right, actually. I have... I've not, I've not been doing anything like particularly useful, but I did make a nice little hippo out of uh, some some material that I had lying around. Who says that's not useful? <laughs> well, exactly. It's useful for me and my well-being. And honestly, I think it's the cutest thing that has ever happened to me in my entire life. And I found a barrel for free outside and now that's mine. Ooh, what kind of barrel? Yeah. Like a kind of asterisks and obelisks well, roll around it looks like did you ever get those like toxic waste sweets <laughs> yes. that came in like a yellow barrel it's like that but it's metal and it's about 50 centimeters in diameter oh that's exciting about, i don't know 70 centimeters deep something like that i don't i don't know what i'm going to use it for i might just use it to put scrap material in it but i liked how it looked so it's mine now <laughs> a piece of scrap material for your scrap yeah, material yeah, um i don't know how people put up with me sometimes they take me on a walk how was that to get up get up the stairs uh, well, it wasn't heavy um but yes speaking of and this is not going to be a good segue having lots of spare time i'm going to talk <laughs> to you uh today about a particular queer film trope or queer media trope uh do you know what a trope is uh you can fill me in you can define it for me 
Okay, okay, cool. Because I'm sure you know, because you do lots of stuff with stuff. Um, but a trope is usually, it's like a particular cliche or an overused storytelling device. Mm -hmm. And it can be common in, in a particular theme or it can be common across different themes. Okay. So for me, I specifically really like thrillers and horror films, which, you know, have a lot of classic tropes that you might be familiar with. Things like uh, a bunch of people go out to a cabin in the woods, mm -hmm. for example, and then they all die. Or there's a child. <laughs> that is secretly a, a demon and you know yep. these tropes come from <laughs> usually things like archetypes of characters that evolved from like a long tradition of storytelling which has been around you know storytelling's been around as long as yeah. we have been around as long as demonic children have been around there's been tropes about them yeah <laughs> well yeah yeah we've got to tell the world about the demonic children that haunt us in our day-to-day -day lives but yeah so the, 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 from that you can kind of gather that there's some popular tropes which are like you know, mm. over, overcoming a monster or something like that it's always popular when you defeat the monster and less popular when the monster wins <laughs> <Defeats> right <you. laughs> when, when the monster is capitalism and you can't win <laughs> well yeah then we just all cry and are poor but it's so i think it's i think it's interesting that um like i said i really like horror and I've watched so much of it now that the predictable, the, the storylines are often quite predictable. Mm. And, and that is actually quite comforting because <laughs> I know what's going to happen, right? And I sort yeah. of can't, well, maybe I don't definitely know what's going to happen, but I kind of have an yeah, inkling. Yeah. It's like Chekhov's gun, right? You know, oh, thank God the gun is on show because now I know it's someone's going to get shot and I can relax. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what the outcome is going to be. It's still a fun journey, regardless of knowing what the outcome is going to be. Mm -hmm. And it also, you know, if it's slightly different from the norm then that's a bit exciting and thrilling in itself so in parallel to this and in no way is this similar but that's a kind of a, a setup i guess is that i really struggle to engage with queer media uh queer television films plays things like that books and it's only really in the last year and a half that I've sort of tried tried a bit harder to find better like forms of media or better examples of queer media to consume that will because I think the things that you often get introduced to first can be just a bit shit because yeah. I don't know I and and maybe um, maybe it's not true but I found that the variety of uh stuff that's available has increased mm. immeasurably in the last 10 yeah. years or whatever and the quality has definitely improved you're so right Exactly. But there's so I and I do I do want to engage in it. Like it's not that I'm just like above it or anything awful like that, but the classic tropes in queer films can sometimes bother me very mm. deeply and and often ring so untrue and and can be actively hurtful that I find myself unable to suspend disbelief, you know, because it's it's mm. almost real enough but then also very hurtful. So there's kind of this disjointed like this rejection of that media for me, you know, whereas yeah. If you're asking me to dis suspend, suspend disbelief and believe that there's a monster in the lake that is so far beyond what could be real that it is possible to suspend disbelief for me there. Mm. And there's, there's, you know, there's um, a lot of these tropes which are quite common. Uh, one is, for example, the closet key or the last het romance in which either a heterosexual, quote, person either meets someone of the same sex who is so hot that they turn gay <laughs> or... 
they meet someone or they're with someone of the opposite sex who is so dull that it turns them gay okay so they're either turned on or turned off in whatever Mm -hmm. scenario and i'm sure that you can appreciate why that can be just like so tacky and unoriginal yeah yeah but the one that i'm going to talk about specifically today is and you know there may be time for other ones in future but this is a very old one it's called bury your gaze or it has been known as the dead lesbian syndrome oh wow daisy i'm just gonna go through my sources now so uh i read um a couple of articles on tvtropes.org and they have like wiki style pages um with tropes explanations of where they came from links to different films where you can sort of see how that acted out not just films though it's um you know video games uh, songs uh books all that sort of thing i read a an article on the nerdist.com by shelly J called we survived bury your gaze to usher in queer immortality um an academic article by helen hulan called bury your gaze history usage and context and um a couple of uh articles on lesbian uh, sorry lgbt fansdeservebetter.com um one on the glad report from 2016 a year of representation and mostly murdered lesbians on tv um and another one on uh, just explaining bury your gaze as a an overarching context so yeah yeah historically queer characters have not been allowed happy endings right and oh, for an, no. and that's for like a number of reasons but i'm specifically going to talk about why they die not just why mm-hmm. they don't get happy endings um and it's played out through through the presentation of the lives of lgbt characters as more expendable than their heterosexual counterparts queer mm-hmm. characters are just more likely to die Okay, than yeah. than straight ones in the same piece of media, and either they're le- uh, this may be because they're perceived as being less interesting by the writers, or less needed, less purposeful, or there can also be a link to believing that queer people just die earlier. Okay, wow, yeah, they just want to torture us by <laughs> torture the mm. queer audience. <laughs> well, yeah, so the deaths are sometimes framed in this really particularly harmful way mm. th- that links their early deaths, their early demise with their queerness so it's not just that they're dying and they're queer it's that they're dying because they're queer so it'll be like either Mm. immediately or very soon after coming out or coming to terms with their sexuality immediately or soon after sex or their first kiss Uh, and so because of the proximity in terms of time with their sexuality being mentioned or identified and their Mm -hmm. death or you know if it's their, their queerness is identified and their death it links those two things together in that they died because they were queer and it's so common yeah and i'm sure that like for me as like a lonely young queer person i was trying to absorb my understanding of what it was to be queer through the media through television Mm -hmm. film and books you know Mm -hmm. and this trope of of queer characters dying in these like just dying early and dying tragically and lonely yeah it's i think it severely affected my ability to see myself being able to grow up and be happy because yeah, there was yeah. it was just like oh you're queer that means you die yeah i connect that with instant death great yeah oh awesome and i was interested actually 
in looking into the origins of the tropes because mm-hmm. I mean I, I, I see it everywhere and I think some of that is a bit of a bias for me as well but I thought that it would be helpful just to run through like a real quick list of yeah, some yeah, examples yeah, before we go to the his- into the history so you know in the best exotic Marigold Hotel Graham uh, who is a gay character dies almost immediately after he locates his long lost lover in Cloud Atlas both the gay bisexual and bisexual characters do not make it to the end of their respective stories while almost everybody else gets a happy ending in the asylum for wayward Victorian girls Veronica and Emily fall in love and Victoria is killed shortly afterwards. The picture of Dorian Gray, in which the three main characters, uh, which is Dorian, Basil and Henry, who are heavily, heavily implied to be gay and bisexual, um, end up with two of them dead. Basil, who is the more obviously gay one, murdered by Dorian and Dorian later commits suicide. The Handmaid's Tale, there's all sorts of things about gender treachery and death, uh, punishable by death and women unless they still serve some kind of horrific <laughs> yeah, breeding nothing purpose. nothing even starts happy in in that one <laughs> No, exactly. In the 100, in season three, Lexa, who was, you know, actually a really amazing queer character, was accidentally killed by a bullet meant for her love interest uh, a short time after they reconciled and consummated their relationship. So they did it and then she immediately died. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, this was a particularly painful memory for me. Tara, Willow's long-term girlfriend, was shot and killed by Warren Mears right after the two of them had made a heartfelt admission and reaffirmation of their love. There was a bunch of stuff on Emmerdale but I can't get into that because it was like seven examples but Coronation Street uh, had a fan favourite couple of Kate Connor and Rana Habib um, and they had a really obnoxious instance of the trope in that they killed off Rana literally burying her in rubble from a collapsed <gasps> building on their wedding day complete with dress and in the vampire it's unnecessary so unnecessary right and then in the vampire diaries uh, they had exactly four homosexual characters throughout the series and all of them were killed uh, all of them killed off None of them just got to like disappear into the mm. ether and go Does on that, and have their stuff. I mean, stories. yeah, you can say that comes down to, you know, half and half of being a vampire, you know, the risk of being a vampire, right? But <laughs> yeah, no. Right? Yeah, because obviously there's like so many instances of films where just everybody dies. And that's mm. fine. If everybody's dying, then dying is a, is part of the film. But if it's that it's a fairly normal film, and then your queer character just dies for to- seemingly mm. no reason, that is damaging. So yeah, but uh, the bury the gay bury your gays tropes even actually has an academic definition now because it's so. <laughs> commonly understood to be a real issue in uh, Mm. media and there's been a media trust set up for uh it's called lgbt fans deserve better and you can go on there and see quite a lot of reports from glad and things like that about Mm. you know 2016 was the year of representation but also mostly dead lesbians and bi women and there's some notable variations as well of um which can essentially come under the uh, the same title which is gay guy dies first uh gay angst induced suicide homophobic hate crime out of the closet and into the fire tragic aid story Mm. And Vasque, uh, Vasquez, I, don't, I can't actually remember how to say her surname, uh, always dies. Um, mm. And that name is the name of the really, really, really queer coded character in Aliens. I don't know if you've seen it. <laughs> no, I but haven't. She's, she's like this, she's very butch and she's very cool. And she's like in the one of the opening scenes they're all she's working out in the like locker room with all these guys and she's doing chin-ups and she's got like a buzz cut and like a bandana on and one of the guys turns to her and goes hey has anybody ever mistaken you for a guy and she turns around to him and says no what about you and it's pow, just pow. really cool <laughs> pow, pow. It's, she's really cool but she d- does die first <sighs> 
and and that's because her her throwback comments are on fire that's why exactly she was too sassy for her own good <laughs> but yeah the, the yeah that one doesn't that's that's not an example that's just sassiness come on yeah exactly that's just being really fucking cool i suppose like it definitely is important to recognize that queer people do have higher mortality in some areas you know um like trans women have an incredibly high rate of um being the victims of domestic violence there's lots of genuine statistics around the fact that queer people may be more likely to be at the receiving end of abuse but there Mm. is also so much queer joy there's a huge celebration within the queer community around pride and wanting to be uh, who we are and loving each other and like there is there is so much to celebrate and yet what we read about and see in films and TV is queer tragedy instead. Only death yeah, and sadness. None of it gets airtime, right? Exactly. The only the abuse and shame and not the airtime for the joy. Like I said, there's going back, there is there is history to it and there's a, a really nice academic article um, by Helen Hulan called Bury Your Gays History, Usage and Context. Mm-hmm. And she outlines that Bury Your Gays as a trope has been around for about 125 years in literature. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's so it was originally used as a way for queer authors to write about queer characters or queer coded characters, let's say, without breaking laws which were actually in place to prevent quote, endorsement of homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cue Oscar Wilde, I guess. Yeah, exactly. He went to prison just for writing codedly gay characters. They didn't even mm. didn't even talk about them bumming. They didn't even talk about them doing it. They just... Yeah, they're just standing around They're just the standing around being a little bit effeminate. Having tea, yeah. And that put him in jail. Okay, so um, it was... They didn't even... Queer authors working from the end of the 19th century up until the middle, middle of the 20th century <clears throat> would kill off their queer characters as a, as a point of safety. And especially mm. if something happened to kind of endear you towards them. If you became... If, like, the story took a twist of sympathy it was almost immediately followed by death or like banishment or destruction of the character in in some way you Mm, know and it was in order to protect themselves their publishers and their readers as well because they were also you know if they were reading the book and passing it to their friends it was to protect the readers from laws and social mandates against like i said Mm. the endorsement of homosexuality and that's like you said it's exactly what's happening in the picture of dorian gray and um another book called spring fire which has very tragic queer deaths in it Mm. and so with like straight media creators in um, Helen's article, she writes that they tend to, straight media creators tend to use the trope either to symbolically punish queerness in their narratives, mm. for example, in the children's hour, or to shock uh, a shock value for the straight audience. You know, so they might some some straight audiences might be completely ignorant to the violence of hate crimes that uh, or the suicide rates or yeah yeah like how how um, prevalent AIDS is. You know, um, mm-hmm. although it's in no way a death sentence now like it was in the 80s queer authors though use the trope in a more in like more contemporary periods so like now basically only really when the death of that queer character will advance the narrative in the greater context of the narrative so if it actually makes sense for them to die as a result of what the story is you know that's like in rent okay but that sort of sensitivity and use of of the trope tends to be only from queer authors who who have that knowledge mm. of what it is it's tough for queer audiences as well to watch that you know if a lot of this shock factor stuff is put in sort of for the benefit of straight people to kind of raise awareness that's really hard to watch 
as yeah. a queer audience member. It you know? can be incredibly triggering, you know, if you're, yeah. if you consider that... We, we know how bad it is, right? Yeah. Like, Yeah, exactly. You know how bad it is. And then you, you're just trying to relax and watch a movie and then there's just mm. like a, a gay bashing scene and you're like, what is... Yeah, it doesn't always have to be like such an education. Like, you're right, there needs to be room for the joy and the escapism and yeah. Exactly. It doesn't always have to be challenging. Yeah. Well. Because it isn't, yeah, it isn't just that, that they die. It's that they they die because of their queerness and, you know, it's almost a punishment. Mm. And many instances of the, the trope over and over again, you know, there's a, a website I use called tvtropes.com, which is really great. <laughs> and you can like, you can even search a film in it and it'll tell you what tropes appear. And then you can go oh, really? and search it. Yeah, and you can click, there's, it has a list at the bottom of every film and song or book or anything that people have said have that trope in and then it'll have the related tropes and it's just, oh, I really enjoy it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> so lame. Tropetastic. Look, I think TV tropes are really interesting. I, I was really into uh, reading about the dead women in freezers. <laughs> no. No. So that's the trope of, of um, how the death of a woman is used in media to progress the plot of a, uh, for a man. So, and it comes mm-hmm. from something. Okay. I think it comes from like the Green Lantern where he comes back and his, his, it's like in the first episode, so it's not, mm. not a spoiler. In the comic, he comes back and finds his wife chopped up in the freezer and that then spurs his kind of crusade of being a superhero and you see it Mm. quite often that these these men widowed and they they decide to go and take on the whole world and and it's a real um, yeah 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 anyway what else is there to do you know yeah exactly uh back to the point sorry guys yeah it comes as almost a punishment and many instances of the trope draw a direct correlation between the couple confessing their feelings uh kissing Mm. having sex um and then die moments pages later um so so that that link is is confirmed that it's not okay yeah yeah that's awful yeah it's really sad and there's so much implication there right that i feel i think it feeds into this kind of collective unconscious belief that queerness means you'll be alone that you'll die tragically young because of disease murder or suicide Mm. and though it's not necessarily like explicit that's the thing it's not explicit but we pick it up you know and it feels intricately linked and we identify as queer people we identify with other with characters that we feel are similar to us so we identify with other queer characters and if they then die then it kind of hits home that oh shit like i don't have a place here and Mm. you know we we're not allowed to see ourselves played out in a happy way or we haven't been for the most part and it's not just. It's not just. Uh, sorry, it's not just that they're killed off. Because if if it was the case that um, straight characters were also dying at exactly the same rate and also in the same ways, that would be fine. But it's just. Mm. It's just too much, and it's just too often, and it's much just more violent. Yeah, much more violent and much higher rates. Yeah, I think that we deserve much better. You know, I don't. I understand this this point, like you said, like oh, maybe it's an education for straight people, or maybe it's to kind of drum up sympathy, but like we don't mm. i don't i don't want pity i don't i don't think i yeah. know many people that want pity we don't want the tragedies of our lives like aired out there for everyone yeah and it doesn't feel like equality does it <laughs> no it doesn't and it feels like it's not not poverty porn but it's like a suffering porn or something like it's you mm. know the saddest like tro- most, trophy yeah yeah tragic aid story will gain the most attention because it's it's just people are i don't know they they there's this enjoyment in watching the suffering of somebody else and mm. and though mm. it can be played off as saying like well you know we're just we're just really feeling for the people but it's like well why don't you feel for the mm. people in the joyous films about times. being queer yeah. 
and and why yeah. does it always have to be focusing on on how painful it is and how mm-hmm. much shame we have and how much misery we have why can't like our existence isn't yeah. just pain yeah. there is pain like don't get me wrong there's pain and there's lots of people have pain in their life from different things not just because they're queer but because of other elements of their life that that have have been painful or traumatic mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's not it just feels unfair that it's so much the focus of media about us i had such a like um battle with um you know some work people about you know when the handmaid's tale got um turned into the the tv series um everyone was recommending it to me they're like it's great it's great it's great Uh, also there's uh there's gay characters so you'll love it and i was like okay um i got got two episodes in and i've never like i just i turned it off because i don't need to see you know that kind of suffering you know something that so it reflects uh, me and you know and so in many ways um castration female castration and and genital mutilation and and women in, enslaved like that stuff i know that's real i know that's real now in the world i don't necessarily like i don't need to see that violence played out like so graphically mm and and that's not what I'm looking for watching telly and I like I wasn't you know I wasn't warned and I wasn't set up for that and I was watching it and I was like this like why would you you know I went in and had coffee the next day and I said why did you recommend that to me that was awful to watch why did you do that to me I'm so sorry that happened and I just which is what I like about you know um it's a sin it does include joy and it is focused around the joy and that's why I think it's been so successful Mm. because that's I didn't want to watch it because I was like, oh, another another AIDS story where it's everyone's another gonna die, AIDS, yeah. and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna cry. And like I did, I did cry in the last episode. But actually, like you said, there is joy, and it was yeah, it was very joyful up until it, it was wasn't. yeah, and like it made sense at that point. Mm. You know, it was so painful to watch, um, but there was so much yeah, there was so much more balance than in those kind of really really depressing accounts. Of, you know, it was a it was an awful time. And there was so much tragedy and misunderstanding. But to have it, um, you know, there's that line where um, he says, it was great. It was, I had so much fun. And that is a really mm. important moment to show, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It really is. And, you know, I mentioned there's the um, LGBT fans deserve better. Mm. So that, that came about there was a, it was just before 2016, which is when the death of Lexa okay. happened on the 100. People started getting a bit fed up with the way things were mm-hmm. going with queer media just always being about you know the old uh there's one trope called the old lesbian bait and switch where they're just about to get together and then one of them dies and it's just like well all right that was queer baiting <laughs> let us have one yeah, yeah. the showrunner jason uh rothenberg uh, who worked on the 100 lost 15,000 twitter followers followers in the days after the episode where lexa died okay and he responded with radio <sighs> silence for weeks he said nothing about it and in the end he just apologized for the way it, way mm. it panned out but he left it he left it weeks you know before saying mm. anything and thousands of people said they would never watch it again you know and that that was quoted uh sorry that was uh written about in an, a nerdist article mm. and then autostraddle did this i thought it was pretty funny this kind of i don't know they did this like comeback article with a, a tongue-in-cheek yeah, yeah. list of a uh, hundred storylines we brainstormed in five minutes that didn't involve dead lesbians and it's just like yeah there's so many things to do like there's so many other ways to have drama to have like in yeah. like excitement thrill like even risk and yeah. danger without dead lesbians mm-hmm. without death yeah yeah but there's there's 
equally, there's an issue of some shows haven't wanted to even harm their queer characters at all, kind of excluding them from being able to be harmed <laughs> uh, or dying at all, making them almost impossibly immortal exactly and that like bionic queer watches entire friendship group not survive the apocalypse yeah exactly in that sense you'd be like well why aren't they dying <laughs> yeah. like and that in itself that can be quite excluding and, mm. and and otherness it's not we don't want to be special in that way we we just want to be normal just balanced, we just want yeah. to be included and just make it balanced um yeah so i think i think i think i repeated myself so much in that but yeah there's, <laughs> there is a history around the trope let's have let's make a film where um you know a bunch of like a mixed friendship group goes to the cabin in the woods and while the the straight guy goes out to check the banging in the shed the the lesbos get it off in front of the fire in the warm and remain safe yeah <laughs> sounds great you know and and yeah the the history of the trope like i get it i get that it is a deeply embedded trope mm -hmm. but it's also the history of it is embedded in shame you know because of the legality the crime and the punishment that came along with it mm -hmm. um it wasn't just because it was a good story and it was liked the first time round and it did well it's because it was necessary and that isn't the case anymore and you know, there's archetypes in stories, like I said, there's so archetypes just being these classic characters that kind of simplify storytelling a little bit and, and, and just make for a really good story. Yeah. And it's some, sometimes it is hard to get away from those, those uh, archetypal characters. But if you're making a million dollar production mm. or, or something like that, I would probably argue that you have a little bit of time and a little bit of budget to put into considering yeah. whether or not your archetypes are just like like perpetuating these harmful stereotypes. Are you, mm. Is it a stereotype or is it an archetype that you're yeah. using? Yeah. Because, and yeah, there's ways to kill off queer characters. Because your audience can tell straight away whether oh, you've done your yeah. research. Yeah, they can tell. Like We can recognise a poorly written queer character who was not written mm -hmm. by queer people unless you're trying. So we just... You know, I'm just I'm just looking out for my good queer uh, media content to consume. Yes, you know, without using harmful plot devices, things like that. Like there is, it's not asking too much. It's it's not it's not asking too much. And honestly, I'm just I'm going to plug it again. My brother's husband was a really great introduction to that for me. It was so cute. Yeah. Queer joy. Queer joy. Having. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to look out for it. I won't be able to watch won't be able to watch a film again without uh, <laughs> without analyzing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just I don't know. I I wonder I don't really know what it is, but I really love kind of seeing these common themes mm. and these archetypal stories play out and and kind of making the links cuz I think I know, so I first I first noticed them when I like I had a girlfriend from Sweden that I'd go to hers and we'd like she was like, "Oh, this is a good gay film. This is a good gay film. Let's watch some gay films." And we watched like two, maybe three. Mm. in like one weekend and in every single one of them it was a woman about to marry a man then met some incredibly <laughs> hot lesbian and then left her husband for this queer woman but had this whole like internal drama and then the guy was like oh you stole my wife and i can't believe you've done this and then the gay lady was like come here come here come here i'm so sexy hot you know mm. you want me and the and then it was this whole thing about like the lesbian stealing the woman from mm. this guy and like that that doesn't 
portray lesbians in a realistic you know i don't know any lesbians that just trawl straight women <laughs> like weddings trying to <laughs> trying to get find a, no exactly a match. i don't know i like pretty much don't know any lesbians that will try and hit on women they ah, think are you're straight. you're not into me okay <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah <laughs> like it's just a turn off if you don't think they're into women because that just wouldn't make sense <laughs> yeah anyway yes that's not um that's by the by uh, that yes. website does sound interesting though like i can imagine you getting into some real um yeah some, some real, real rabbit holes some definitely. real rabbit holes yeah <laughs> this is connected to that and then this and this and then suddenly it's you know um it's just me and a wall with like pictures and bits of string where i've linked everything and like it's all connected it's all connected <laughs> um thanks so much for um yeah taking me taking me through that i think um yeah like sitting back and kind of reassessing um you know the media that we've um we've been kind of growing up with and you know whether that's been part of a a queer journey or not it is it is interesting to look at it with hindsight and there is such a lot of quality um much more joyful um, and balanced media out there at the moment um and so hopefully it's you know on the up with that yeah i hope so So i hope so it actually um, relates quite nicely to what I'm going to talk about this week. Um, I was, as I said, like in the last few episodes, I've been, um, you know, talking about some, you know, quite serious topics. Um, so this week, I wanted to like pull it right back to camp, um, and I'm going to talk about Excellent. one of my favourite films um, from when I was growing up, um, mm-hmm. which is The Wizard of Oz. Um, yeah. The wonderful yes. Wizard of Oz. Um, I'm so excited. You know, when you're having like a really crap time. Um, because yeah. it's 2021 and Always. and that's all the reason you need and I just was trying to think about just something I just I love and something that makes me instantly happy and joyful and for me that's The Wizard of Oz and I was thinking about its you know its legacy and uh, its symbolism within uh, the queer community and you know the many adaptations and, and reels of fan fiction across the internet I think that they really pay homage to this this iconic story of, of friendship, um, courage, and, uh, you know, celebrating difference, um, which mm. as a kid, you know, I, f- I found real solace um, and escapism in the film. And I think it's queer undertones uh, and utter, utter campness. Um, in hindsight, you know, definitely had something to do with, you know, what I was going through as a child um, yeah. and what I was seeking as a child. So a bit of backstory, uh, the 1939 film was produced by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios, uh, or MGM, one of the world's oldest film production companies. Uh, they're the ones that start with the uh, the big lion roaring. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Iconic. But as you probably know, The Wizard of Oz was uh, an adaptation of a children's novel called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, written by L. Frank Baum in 1900. And it's essentially this story about uh, loneliness and not fitting in. And it follows this group of social outcasts who search for belonging and will defend and protect each other at all costs. Mm. Yeah, it's about closing your eyes uh, when the world gets a bit too much, uh, clicking your heels together and wishing for somewhere entirely different. Yeah. And if that doesn't resonate with the uh, the the queer experience, then I don't know what does. Yeah, yeah, no, that definitely. And true. if you kind of look at how that group of outcasts uh, they unite and um, they work together, that you know very much mirrors uh, the way in which LGBTQ plus people uh, discover new chosen families and the way we build community. Yeah, or how those communities form from people being sort of outcast and. Um, you know, discriminated against. So I was like, oh, this yeah. is hella queer already. So it turns out, uh, yeah, Frank L. Baum didn't really give a shit about traditional gender norms in any of his books. Nice. Um, 
and that comes from kind of having some particularly strong female characters in uh, in his life already. More on that later. Ooh, okay. In the 1909 sequel Road to Oz, readers are introduced to the Cloud Fairy, uh, Polychrome, a character who is actually the youngest daughter of the Rainbow. Daughter of the Rainbow. Could this shit get any gayer? Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> the more you dig, um, who upon meeting Dorothy. Uh, or Dorothy's somewhat motley crew exclaims, oh, you have some queer friends, Dorothy. To which she replies, <laughs> the queerness doesn't matter so long as they're friends. So Dorothy uh, equals Mega Babe. Uh, she's a, she's yeah, a babe. Yeah, absolutely Mega Babe. Love her. <laughs> Balm also introduced uh, what is widely considered one of the first transgender characters in literature um, in the form of uh, oh, wow. Princess Ozma, uh, who was the ruler of the fictional Oz universe. So that's pretty cool. Mm, that is really cool. So I'm going to tell you uh, a bit of a uh, bit of backstory here. Baum's uh, children's novels actually had a surprising um, feminist uh, origin story, uh, which undoubtedly led to the book having a strong female lead in the character of Dorothy. Um, and of course, the witches, uh, let's not forget them. Um, and it probably explains mm-hmm. his kind of lack of interest in gender roles uh, in all the stories. Um, so Baum's uh, mother-in-law was a women's suffragist um, and Native American rights activist. Um, as well as like a fierce nice. public speaker and author. So you can absolutely, yeah, you can absolutely imagine uh, the horror that when her 20-year-old daughter, uh, Maud, uh, came home with a struggling actor and not quite writer in the form of L. Frank Baum, every, uh, how disappointed um, she was. Mm. I must have abs- I must have deleted the, the name. Hang on. Uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage was her name, the mother-in-law. Okay. Nice. So even more disappointingly, uh, not only did she bring, did uh, Maud bring home this sort of drip of a, you know, a writer. Um, oh, a little drip. I know he was. Um, they actually, yeah, even more disappointingly, they got hitched and ran away with uh, Frank's theatre troupe uh, and wound up in Kansas, where else, um, before quickly going broke and then slinking back to New York uh, expecting their first child. So didn't go super well when they tried to run away. Um, so Frank was, was forced away from his dream in the arts and um, started selling oil cans uh, to support the family. That's right, oil cans. <laughs> so, All right. Sure, um, you could do anything back then. Yep where, can you get, yep, where can you get your inspiration from? But gradually over the years, his ferocious uh, mother-in-law warmed to his whimsical nature and even admitted that he, he was a good writer and after almost two decades encouraged him to try writing a book. Uh, et voila, oh. uh, the Wizard of uh, the Land of Oz was born. So that's the books. That's so, um, so yeah, keep at it. <laughs> the 1939 film is, I think, littered with queer coding and references. And the more you watch it, you know, the more these things comes out, come out, um, including a possible, mm. there's an innuendo um, about bisexuality when Dorothy is oh. talking to uh, the scarecrow and she asks him uh, which way to go on the yellow brick road. Um, and he says, yeah. of course, some people go both ways. Uh, <laughs> and there's, you know, there's so many kind of metaphors it's in there. Though. It is. Some people do go both ways. Upon Dorothy's arrival to Munchkinland, um, the colourscape bursts into glorious technicolour, mm. which is sort of a metaphor for the fabulous life that queer people can embrace when they come out of the closets. Uh, and onto the streets and onto the elevator road and you know uh, just able to kind of come out the closet and live authentically uh, when seen and accepted by their chosen family in the thriving uh, LGBT community so it's sort of a metaphor for that you know Dorothy arrives there's colour um you know, uh, Kansas in the film is is seen as oppressive in in black and white and uh, you know the looming storm coming 
uh, could be a sign of an approaching sort of turbulent awakening, let's say. Um, and then, mm. you know, she lands in, in Kansas, uh, in, in, in Munchkinland and everything is bright and everything is joyful and, and glorious. And, you know, the character of Dorothy, um, she's very accepting of everybody she meets from uh, heartless gentlemen made of tin uh, to story airheads and cowardly dandelions. You know, the lion is described as a dandy. Um, a dandelion. Dandy I remember. That, is, that character is very queer coded. Very camp, yeah. Um, proper dandy. And obviously in the MGM uh, film, the role was played by uh, none other than a young Julie Garden. Garland Mm -hmm. and yeah Judy Garland was soon uh, to become like an icon to the gay community and a real kind of staple figure of campness when you think about yeah camp icons you think of Judy Garland Mm. she sings somewhere over the rainbow for god's sake I mean yeah um, you know a song that is is harking for for hope um, and liberation um, which obviously resonated hugely with the queer community uh, particularly gay men um, Mm. who were more than happy to fly uh, the rainbow as a symbol of their flag uh, ever since so it it was um, it was thought that uh, this uh, song and this connection to the rainbow is what um, kind of sparked that entire movement. Wow. So it's okay. pretty, you know, there's stuff to it. Yeah, yeah. And I actually read that uh, the song Somewhere of the Rainbow was almost cut from the film. And what? the associate producer, Arthur Freed, had to like really fight to keep it in. What? Yeah, what was the reasoning for cutting it? It's because it was too long. Um, you know, the film itself was running at like 100 minutes or something. And mm. it was, was you long, know, which then. was really long for, you know, of the time. Yeah, I was thinking as as well. I remember when I was like, when I was pretty young and still sort of not understanding my sexuality is I, I remember talking to my mum about, about Judy Garland because I'd heard that she was a gay icon and I thought mm. that, that meant that she was gay. And my mum was just like, oh, she she has a lot of male, she has a lot of male friends who are gay. She's very mm. accepting of her gay male friends in a way that a lot of people weren't at the mm. time. And she was, yeah, kind of seen as that idealised form of acceptance. Yeah. Acceptance off the bat without having to convince someone that you're mm. a decent human being. Yeah, she, you know, she was happy to hang out in, in the gay clubs, you know, with, with her friends. And yeah, you know, they were, she recognised that they were a huge part of her fan base and... Mm. you know why would you discriminate against that yeah so it was a it was a it was a bloody good decision to keep in keep the song in uh considering that it went on to win the film and academy award that year for best original song and became one of the most notable performances uh of garland's career wow yeah and as a result she obviously became uh this kind of mascot for um, a generation of gay men uh, in the 50s and 60s who were her avid followers and they always, you know, they flocked to her performances and they were always hunting her down in gay bars. She was already there, right, with her her set of (laughs) friends. Um, You know, oh, you found me. You know, and so at the time, like, uh, these gay men were referring to themselves as friends of Dorothy's. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, the phrase of a friend of Dorothy's, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, and it's something I actually discovered, you know, while doing the research uh, for the episode on, on Polari. Um, like, much like Polari and other underground slang at the time, asking if somebody was a friend of Dorothy's uh, was a euphemism for gay people to, you know, just drop into conversations to ask, um, you know, to kind of discuss someone's sexuality um, undetected by uh, the straight people around them. Yeah, they'll just be like, who the fuck's Dorothy? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're a friend of Dorothy's. Goes undetected. So, sadly... Um, Judy Garland died on the 22nd of June 1969, just uh, 
just days actually before the the very um, uh, poignant Stonewall riots, actually. But um, obviously the two aren't, um, mm. they're not connected, but it is just a, like an interesting footnote, of, you know, on the timeline. Yeah. Yeah, the Stonewall riots were obviously like a result of persistent discrimination uh, against the LGBT community um, of trans people, street kids, sex workers, um, all those people who were forced underground. So I definitely don't want to belittle that. Uh, back to Dorothy. Um, so we can't talk about Dorothy without uh, and not talk about the ruby slippers. Um, as a camp mm-hmm. object, something I've been wanting mm-hmm. to slip into you one of these episodes. I love camp objects. So the ruby slippers are Dorothy's like most defining accessory, and uh, they're symbolic for the film as a whole. Um, you know, you don't even you don't need to see anything else apart from a pair of ruby slippers, and to think mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz. Um, and when it, within the film's narrative, the slippers are, are somewhat uh, a reclaimed object as well. Their apparition onto Dorothy's feet, which transforms her from the kind of mom- momentary uh, liberator of Munchkinland from the Wicked Witch, Wicked Witch of the East, on whom she dropped her house and killed, uh, to this kind of lost girl trapped, uh, trapped herself in this strange new world. Yeah. And so it, indeed, so, yeah. Yeah, and it's like it's so iconic that they even mm. on posters literally will just have the shoes yeah and you know you know what it you is know. and actually i was just thinking like the the poster for kinky boots is also a pair of sparkly red yeah. boots but like yeah it's that kind of must be a play yeah yeah that's really cool <laughs> so she kind of yeah so she becomes trapped in in these in these shoes um and she's told that she can't remove them until they have led her along the golden path to oz um and the shoes possess magical powers, uh, dispel evil and attempts of wickedness upon Dorothy and her friends. And of course, as we know, eventually transport Dorothy home. So in the Objects as Text essay by Evan J. Lincoln, uh, the ruby slippers are described as having uh, a distinct flamboyance to them, a camp sensibility that seems mm-hmm. to resonate especially with queer people. Yep, absolutely. Nail yeah. on the head. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, and as you say, like they're seen, they're plastered up in gay bars, um, drag performances will, you know, do a little kind of nod to them. Um, and yeah, just fashion accessories that, uh, you know, nod to a time in the past where queer people relied on, on signifiers to discover um, and decode one another. And they kind of, that notion of kind of secrecy and, and the language, you know, through linguistics and objects, um, queer people have been able to kind of exist safely and proudly within their own kind of constructed world. Yeah. Yes. So there have been a number of, of spin offs and associative films and productions that also exist within uh, the land of Oz. So it's clearly, yeah, clearly a story that has touched the hearts of millions since uh, Baum's children novel. So, but okay, so the most poignant one for me, aside from the MGM film, because that was obviously like... The most poignant one of the spin-offs, you mean? Yeah, yeah, the kind of the next the next generation of, of kind of Oz films I guess or Oz uh, media was well, something that uh, it just so happened to arrive pretty much at the same time more or less as my own queer awakening uh, as a teenager uh, it was of course um, Wicked the Musical yes yeah. yes I am that kind of gay uh- <laughs> me too <laughs> Where are you oh thank god I've seen it honestly I've seen it three <gasps> times it's really oh my god okay I thought I was gonna go off on I was gonna go off on I thought I was gonna go off on one and you'd be like oh my god like she's no, going to talk about musicals. Carry on. Okay, thank God. Okay, Wicked the Musical. Uh, so that's also based on a book, Gregory Maguire's 1995 novel Wicked, uh, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, uh, which retells mm. the classic Oz story from the perspective of Elphaba, the Wicked Witch of the West. And it focuses yes. on the relationship between the two witches uh, in their early years um, after meeting at university. Yeah. And the musical is is striking in that it places two women in the primary positions, um, yeah. which sort of paves the way for uh, so many conversations about queerness and, and bisexuality um, whilst being scored by like a medley of 
almost love songs. Yeah. So in this way, we're sort of teased, I guess, by moments that are almost queer. Yeah, and it also definitely plays into the um, goth girlfriend mm. and super soft girly <laughs> <Yeah>. girlfriend <laughs> in a pairing together. And that's essentially what they are. One of them wears black all the time. One of them wears fairy princess yeah, yeah, yeah. dresses all the time. <laughs> yeah, um, bubblegum yeah, and goth. The two, yeah. the two ends of the uh, lesbian dress code spectrum. Hell yeah. So you've got these like songs about... Um, songs about loathing rather than true love and so even though the pair like instantly hate each other initially the audience sees how they are irresistibly drawn together drawn to one another nevertheless yeah so i also you know was i the only queer kid in the theater wishing for this awesome independent witch to ditch her airhead toy boy and run away with her beautiful best friend i absolutely doubt it but you can be certain that this is you know it wasn't a topic for discussion on the coach home with my circle of school friends right so i was sort of and it's only till like you know now and thank god for tumblr but um you know my feelings were kind of validated and yeah there are loads of there are loads of queer themes in wicked Mm -mm, you know alphaba is essentially ostracized for her so initially um it's for her physical differences um color of her skin the way she dresses but this soon takes a shift towards her kind of ethical differences you know her intelligence her moral uh, political morals and rebellious independence and of course her magical powers um Mm -hmm, she mm -hmm. stands up for the rights of the oppressed characters and embraces the parts of herself for which she was previously um, othered for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some queer audiences read Elphaba as non-binary, and there's a there's some. I argument. can see that definitely because yeah, she there's... doesn't. She's does. She's like fairly gender non-conforming in her presentation mm. as well. Like, definitely, she doesn't. There's this whole there's this whole section of her trying to assimilate, basically. Yeah, you know, with popular, and it's just like it's obviously not for her. She's just mm-hmm. quite gender non-conforming. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, we can certainly connect with the the character's kind of defining trait of being an outcast and, you know, not quite fitting into a narrative that, um, you know, that's not quite fitting in as a narrative that queer people face throughout their lives. But the, the powerful thing about uh, the story within Wicked the Musical is that the supposed kind of wicked witch um, that we all grew up glad a house was dropped on is actually humanised um, and best of all, like by the end of it, extremely empowered by her difference. I mean, the end of Act One, you're just like, yeah, I'm rooting for you. Um, you know, and she flies up and it's all very like, you know, she physically takes off and it's just, oh, my little heart. Yeah, she just moves on. I mean, ultimately, the production uh, explores the harmony and tenderness between these two friends, two women, um, let's say, both lyrically and musically. Yeah, at the end of the first act, there's obviously this mighty queer crux where Elphaba leaves, um, sorry, invites Glinda to come away with her, you know, for the promise of, of dreams the way we planned them. Um, but unfortunately, yeah. Glinda decides to remain remain behind. And so the pair are separated, which causes Elphaba to, you know, be forced and kind of continue to fly solo. And it's, you know, maybe that's the, the trope of, you know, oh, here's an opportunity, but they don't they don't take it um and you know that and that's the um gay but not too gay yeah one. <laughs> yeah and you know the true nature of their um their friendship and their connection must be kept sort of away from the public um alpha becomes this kind of scapegoat and you know as mm. as the pair's uh union is is never seen as tolerable you know, because of Elphaba's acts of rebellion and all that rebellious green green witch. Yeah, and you know, the wicked one, you know, and um so there's this, you know, the way that Glinda has to has to mourn in secret, um, in order to kind of cover up the true nature of the relationship she had with Elphaba in order to, you know, preserve her own reputation. Uh sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Um mm, it does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that stuff happens all the time. Um, you know, so it kind of, you know, it mirrors the shame 
that you know people essentially you know you could mirror it to being deciding to you know remain in the closet or to pursue a certain life in order to protect uh, you know save face basically yeah it's the saving face as well kind of links to the the need almost to run to run away mm. to go away and that that as well is is can uh, is a really common theme in in queer media is that you ha- like you can't just stay in your hometown and yeah. be queer you have yeah. to go somewhere else yeah yeah, yeah yeah um so on reflection um i think the main thing that stood out for me uh was that yeah it was the it was the first time that i had seen a stage production um of such such grandeur um that like mm. took a typically conventional musical storyline um and placed an unconventional pairing of two women as the central couple um you know whether it's romantic or not um obviously i will read romance into it but you know whether they're openly queer or not they're the central couple and i think you know since then I've, we've been able to see so many more musicals featuring like more openly queer characters um but as a teenager it felt like you know this felt like a pretty big deal and you know I'll clutch at any straws <laughs> that, yeah. I, that I have. And I think that there's a whole there's a real need to be able to kind of accept that different audiences will read the context of a play differently mm-hmm. You know, that you as a young queer person, you saw that play and you read it as queer because that's what that's what it meant to you. Yeah. That's what was important about it to you. Mm. I was having a conversation with some some colleagues about this this child's book and someone was saying, oh, they well, you know, they've not someone else hadn't understood the quote true context behind the book and I, I was I was talking about how it's actually kind of more important how the person who's watching it is taking it yeah you know it's more important to the reader that way it's more important to understand that someone that the the it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what the author's true intention was it matters who's taking it in yeah you know yeah definitely in the essay yeah one of my main sources um it's called defying gravity Queer Conventions in the Musical Wicked. Uh, it's by Stacey Wolfe. Mm. Um, and nice. Stacey Wolfe describes how the show uses, yeah, this this quite conventional formula, um, but adds adds in layers of um, newly gendered and, and queered content and, and ways to re- sort of redefine belonging and comment on, on relationships, which is why yeah it's and it's why it, uh, the the production had huge financial success because you know it was you know it was a little bit ambiguous and you know it was very clever to kind of open the doors to queer audiences around the world um mm. definitely don't shut yeah don't shut people out uh, if if only for the monetary value of the you know the lgbt audience is huge and should not be ignored and yeah the pig um, pound is very strong yeah and like, yeah, I don't know the impo- like the impact that it that it's had on mm. on queer kids is is just really important. Yeah, it doesn't, actually, it kind of doesn't matter if they were intended to be queer. Is mm-hmm. the fact that it has inspired queer kids, and that's yeah, really great. But in the um, in the Maguire uh, novel, like he is actually um, Gregory Maguire has actively said like, yes, they have a relationship. You know, there's no am- ambiguity there. It's yes, they have a relationship. It's you know, interp- it was kind of interpreted as a bit more, um, I don't know, call it family friendly or whatever. Um, for the for the musical, you know, they have it, at, yeah. at most. It's kind of you know the bisexual vibe because you've got their friendship, but also there's Fiero just kind of thrown in there as a, a little ploy. Yeah, um, he was a nice little token male character. Yeah, why not? But yeah, he doesn't get a fly, you know? The fe- the witches fly. <laughs> yeah, Alphabet flies. So fucking badass. Glinda arrives in a fucking bubble. Like they're the ones with the power. I just I I love it and I love anything that's connected to the Wizard of Oz. Um, you know, the very fact that there's just so many adaptations uh, is just 
yeah, a testament to the immeasurable relevance of uh, the Wizard of Oz among queer people. Um, I think that's that's just my opinion. Yeah. Um, you know, suddenly it's three a.m. and you're you're in a like a hole of Gelfie fanfic <laughs> on Tumblr. Yeah. Um, there was a blog I found which was like anyway, it was just other quotes. I'll send you the blog. Uh, it's it's okay. It's Is quotes it like out of context quotes or something. It's it's just quotes from other bits of media, um, but telling the how it should have been in Wicked. Um, I don't know if that right, makes sense. Right. Um, <laughs> kind of, sort of. We'll post something. I'll post something. <laughs> yeah, uh, Gelfie, Gelfie fanfic. Yeah, these things happen. Uh, we we could relate the reclaimed popularity of witches uh, to the way queer people are embracing oh, yeah, the world yeah, yeah. and Wicked within you know that they were previously hunted for that's something you spoke about um in a previous episode after all and uh here's my closing quote Uh, according to gregory Maguire, in the life of a witch there is no after in the ever after of a witch there is no happily (laughs) oh so that's good i love it i'm obsessed oh it makes me so happy it makes me so that was amazing oh my god Daisy, I had I had no idea. I now have ideas for all of your next birthdays and Christmases oh, and things. It's all going to be Wizard of Oz themed, just so you know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I had this little postcard of Dorothy on the inside of my wardrobe. Um, and I was just like, be more like Dorothy. Like, not in the way I dress, obviously, but um, very much in a kind of be accepting of all and, you know, yeah. make friends with scarecrows. And just like, yeah, she's also like really brave and has a really yeah, cute super dog, brave. which I'm yeah. into. Her friends are the best. Like, I love... The, I love the scarecrow. I wanted to be the scarecrow so bad in any, you know, not just in school productions, <laughs> just like in life. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great film, and the variety of characters as well is is mm. really, really sweet. And it's not just like um, that kind because it because it's such. I don't know. It's not high fantasy, but it's just, because it's such fantasy. The characters don't have to be all variations on the same theme um mm-hmm. so they're not it's not a bunch of white people with different hairstyles it's like a bunch of characters that are entirely different one's a lion one's a tin yeah. man one's a scarecrow and yeah. they've got very different and very fundamental mm-hmm. struggles that they have to overcome in order to complete yeah. this great quest and you know that's that's also the queer community we're not all we don't all have the same struggles we all have different struggles yeah, yeah, yeah. that we have to overcome but we do it all together and that's definitely uh, so it's so and lovely. even you know even the the witches are, are humanized, you know, even in, in obviously later stories and adaptations, you know, to have Wicked explore the 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 evil, the perceived evil characters, and to humanize them. Yeah. Um. You know, you find out the sto- you find out why the ruby slippers are, are significant, and and why she's fighting to protect them, and why it's very imperative that they get the fuck off Dorothy's feet, you know, and go back to the. Yeah their true family owners you know it all i love the the detail and i think you wouldn't apply that much detail to something that that didn't really matter yeah and yeah so big fan big fan of the wizard of oz um um yeah daisy and <laughs> no, no no i was gonna say daisy thank you uh so much for sharing that with me you've i i feel like today Thanks you've shared for with letting me, me waffle. you've shared with me some of your queer joy i think because that yes. was such a lovely yes. like very heartfelt exploration of the wizard of oz and its queer legacy and i really i really enjoyed that so much that was so good thank you very much well, join us. Um, yeah, follow us on all of our, our social medias. Yeah, find us in Kansas, along the Yellow Brick Road, uh, on Twitter, <laughs> Radio Zaddy, X-A-D-D-Y, um, on Instagram, Radio Zaddy, um, and, and that's it. And then wherever you get your podcasts, please come uh, listen and tune in next time. Exactly. Available where any good podcasts are sold. Um, we do often post the uh, Spotify link sometimes, but that's just it's the only platform that will allow us to share directly to Instagram, but 
we can be got on any platform that supports uh, podcasts for you. But thank you so much for listening. Um, we really love it when you join us. I've been Hannah Bestwick and with me, as ever, has been Daisy Thurston Jen. Thank you very much. And we'll catch you in the land of Oz. See you there. <laughs> bye. Bye bye.